You are listening to Hear Her Sports, a podcast for active, adventurous women who love hearing stories from other active, adventurous women. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery. In every episode, I introduce a female athlete or woman in sports through a conversation about who they are and the terrific work they're doing. Hello and welcome. This week, I'm talking to Helena Gilbert Snyder, a young athlete strongly interested in pushing for gender equity in sport. What interests me is that not only is Helena an athlete, but she works in the sports industry and works with high school athletes. So she is seeing what's happening in a bunch of different areas of sport. We talk about sexism, the impact of her work with high school cyclists, success, getting knocked off course, and her binder of stories. Whenever I get the opportunity to talk to younger athletes, it feels like a good check-in. Where we are now, what's important, what issues we still are fighting, where we have seen success, and what is the next generation interested in accomplishing. So a big thank you to Helena for taking the time to be here on the podcast, and let me introduce her. Helena Gilbert Snyder is a financial analyst at Specialized Bicycles, and she races bikes at the professional level across dirt, road, and gravel disciplines. A big focus for Helena's racing this season is the Lifetime Grand Prix. She is the youngest of the athletes selected to compete in this new, exciting, televised six-race off-road series. Helena is highly involved with several local high school mountain bike teams through NICA, the National Interscholastic Cycling Association, and with her local road racing organization. She is also an active advocate for women's sports and gender equity at a broader level. Well, welcome, Helena. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm excited to be on. Great. So you are off to Redland soon. That's going to be fun. Is that your first time? <laughs> yes, it will be my first time, my first stage race. So nothing like getting into the thick of things with the first one you're going to do. No kidding. That's a that's a rough way to start, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so you said it's your first stage race. So how have you been preparing? Um, a lot of the training I do for the Lifetime Series is just going to carry over to the stage racing. So because the races I do are so long, you know, over six hours for many of them, um, I'm counting on that being able to get me through five days of, of road racing. Well, just from my own experience, I always noticed that there was a sort of a break of three days. You know, like it was pretty easy to do three days. The fourth and fifth are pretty hard. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll see how I feel on day four and five. So you mentioned the Lifetime Grand Prix. You know, I've been following that and it just sounds like, I don't know, super stupendous. Yeah, it's it's new this year. It's kind of a cool idea from Lifetime to pull together some of the top uh, men and women in predominantly North America to go to six events uh, across most of the year and compete for um, a large prize purse, but more importantly, just increase field sizes and draw attention to racing at the professional level in the U.S. Yeah, there's not that much big racing anymore in the U.S., or it seems like it's dropped off a little bit. Yeah, unfortunately it has. You know, we've seen some of the big road tours leave. Um, mountain biking has always kind of been there, but more in the background. Um, and road at definitely an amateur level is is struggling a bit. So hopefully this series can, at minimum, you know, draw a lot of people into the sport in ways that weren't happening beforehand. So what was the first event like? You've had one event, right? Yes, there's been one. My race did not go well. There were some big issues early on. 
that put me more into survival mode instead of good result mode. But it was it was pretty exciting because my coworker Mariah Wilson did win that event, which was very exciting for for me to see. And uh, we're looking forward to the next one, which is the Unbound 200 in in June. So that'll be 200 miles in Kansas. Wow. You've piqued my interest. What happened early on? (laughs) (laughs) Um, There was a bit of a feed zone mishap, and I did not get a bottle on the first lap, which um, it was very hot out. So I got dehydrated very early on. Definitely had some heat exhaustion by the second lap and was (laughs) trying to get to the finish line without having to pull out. So not the way you want to start things, but we all get to drop one result from the series. And, you know, I just have to move on from that one and (laughs) and see what I can do the rest of the year. Right. And not miss the next feed. Yeah. Yeah. That, That will not happen again, for sure. The races are longer and since you mentioned nutrition, like how are you managing that? And you know, given that you had this little mishap, what what's gonna what's gonna change for this next one? And that's gonna be so much longer too. Yeah, thankfully my stomach is bulletproof. I have not been able to make it upset with whatever I eat, so I rely very heavily on drink mix and gels for for all of my racing. So for the long one, you know, we're going to be on the bike for over twelve hours, well over twelve hours. It's definitely a lot of, you know, drinking, drinking fluids consistently, getting in the calories consistently. Um, and it's, it's a matter of, you know, how, how many calories can you consume and how many calories can your body handle before, before everything breaks down. And I am assuming that you have a crew given that you had a feed for the first one. Yes. Yeah. So my crew is our volunteers and friends. Um, They're not they're not necessarily professionals, but they're awesome. So I think for Kansas, I've managed to convince my my family to go. So they'll be helping out. There'll probably be some coworkers there from Specialized who will be happy to help. And that one's mostly self-supported. There's really only two feed zones where your crew can be. So you bring most of your hydration and food with you on the bike. Whoa, um, versus, that's a lot yeah. to carry. Yeah, there's camelbacks involved and there there's a lot of stuff that you have to bring with you and like mechanical stuff for when you when you flat or have an issue, you're in the middle of nowhere. So you have to be able to to deal with it yourself. So what does your bike look like? What kind of bike and you know, what panniers or bags or whatever do you have? Yeah, so I'm super lucky. I got a new Crux from Specialized, so I will be racing on that. Um, it looks like a road bike. It just has uh, beefier tires and other little geometry changes, but I'll be using that bike, and I'll see how I want to set it up, but I'll likely be using bags on my top tube um, to carry supplies. I'm a big fan of just stuffing food into my my pockets, so I'm sure I'll be doing that. And I'll also have a camelback, which will carry most of my fluid, you know, two water bottles, and then at every crew stop, I'll I'll swap out everything and and get a new a new full load. Are you super rigorous about how much you're eating? The like the calories or grams of carbohydrates or however you're calculating it. Yeah, I have a coach who helps kind of calculate out how much I need to be eating and when. It's less about 
what you're eating in some ways and more that you are eating, especially for events like this where you just you just need to get stuff into your into your stomach. So I'll be counting on him to help me plan out, you know, when I have to eat and what. And then and then it's just a matter of, you know, looking at your your clock and knowing, okay, 30 minutes has gone up, like I need another gel. Um, and just staying on top of it, you know, you can't, you can't get into a hole early as, as I know, uh, firsthand. And um, that's, that's a lot of the success for these longer races. Right. What else is your training like? Like what kind of rides are you doing? And how often are you riding? I know that you have a full time job, and we'll be talking about that in a minute. But let's start with that. Yeah, so I do a full time job. So during the week, I fit my rides around that. I'm able to be pretty flexible with my work. So, you know, I can go out for two hours around lunchtime and get in rides. You'll see most of my longer rides are on the weekends when I'm able to, you know, put out six or seven hours and not feel bad about missing work. So that's when I get in most of my volume. It depends. I try to aim for around 15 hours on the bike each week. Um, You know, it, it ebbs and flows depending on work and weather. And I also, you know, wrap in strength training around that too. So there's a lot going on at at all times of the day. And what kind of cross training and strength training are you doing? And do you have a gym at Specialized? There is a gym at Specialized. Nice. Um, I work with a coach near me who, you know, really specializes in strength and conditioning that can basically balance out what I do on the bike. So making sure that my core is really strong and the kind of the rotational forces that really impact you on the bike, you know, I'm able to counter. Um, And that comes into play, especially in the longer races when your body gets tired, you don't want to start compromising how you're moving, which can, you know, impact efficiency and lead to injury if if you're doing something wrong. I recently heard a term that I really like called technical endurance, which basically is what you're talking about, being able to maintain good form, you know, for a long time, even when you're tired. Yeah, it's it's a skill and it's hard. It's hard to practice, right? Because you don't you don't get into those issues until you're, you know, been on the bike for over six hours. And most of us aren't on the bike for over six hours very frequently. So it can be tough to to know how you'll react um, in those situations. How are you with really long endurance? Because 12 hours is a long time to be on a bike. Yeah, that um, so far, my longest race has been nine hours on the bike. Um, and that one did go well. So I'm hopeful that I'll be okay for these long events. All of them are challenging in their own ways. But, you know, I do have experience with some really long races, both mileage and time. So counting on that to get me through and also the work I've been putting on on the bike and off the bike and and eating, of course. <laughs> yeah. And what kind of doubts do you have? Um, I don't know about doubts. I think that there's always kind of the the thought that, oh, what if I'm not good enough for this or what if I don't? deserve to be here when you see people you're lining up against who you know, do this professionally or are world champions or national champions, whatever it may be. But I do this because I want to, you know, it's, it's not my full-time job. I could drop it tomorrow and no one would really, <laughs> would really, you know, care in some ways. It's, it's completely up to me. And it's really cool to be able to see how I can impact a lot of people around me just 
by what I'm doing on the bike, even though I'm not at, you know, a world level, um, you know, it can it can still really drive people and inspire people in other ways, which has been a really cool experience for me to see. And what are you most excited about? I like competition. I am extremely competitive and I think it's super fun to do things where you're not sure how it's going to go or if you're going to finish or, you know, what might happen on race day. So I'm always excited to do things that are are slightly scary and you're not positive it's going to work out well. So you said you like competition and you also sort of hinted that it's a little bit scary. So, you know, on race day, like what's your mindset? Like how do you approach being there on the starting line with doubts and excitement and nerves and also goals, I suppose? I think it's changed for me over the years. You know, early on when I was racing, you know, I was definitely focused on the result and I was, you know, super focused and zoned in all the time. And that's still the case, but I think I've realized that, you know, it's okay to have some humor with the whole situation and laugh a bit. So, you know, now when I go into races, you know, I, I don't overthink my warm up. You know, I, I don't stress about, you know, the, the perfect everything leading up to it. Um, you know, I I do definitely get very focused. You can ask my, my parents how um, focused I can get. You know, don't try to have a conversation with me necessarily. But, you know, I do try to make crack some jokes to myself or just kind of look at things in the bigger picture because I think that it's super easy to get so focused on a certain race or a certain result and forget that there are 50 of us lined up in more or less underwear on a start line at 6 a.m. in the middle of nowhere in the dark. Like, that's kind of <laughs> ridiculous. And the and fact that we do this. It. Yeah, we pay for this <laughs> and it just hurts for six hours. Like, right. who does that? Right. So I try to think of it that way. And, you know, because things happen like that last race where it just goes south immediately. Right. And like if I had gone there and been like, oh, my God, like my entire life rests on this moment, it would have been really crippling to have that result right but you know i did sulk for an hour i would say but i did you know just kind of recognize that it happens and you just got to move on and there's a lot of positives to take away from it and people still you know enjoyed talking to me and helping me and and that's all right so i try to i try to keep it light i try to think positive and and still go out and uh you know we all rip each other's legs off for for six hours so there there's that too and it's always a learning lesson. Like, yeah. don't miss your feet. Now you know. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what are your long-term goals? I mean, not just for these, the Grand Prix, but other races or maybe the Grand Prix Series. That's a tough one. The Grand Prix Series, um, I want to, you know, finish it feeling proud of my results, you know, feeling like I've I've done what I could for this year. I want to finish it, you know, still feeling like I want to ride my bike, hopefully competitively. And I have realized that what makes it worthwhile for me on the bike is how I can impact others, you know, both, you know, people who just support me, you know, on race day or, you know, the kids that I work with. A lot of 
how I see success in what I do on the bike is how I can cause other people to feel successful themselves. So I definitely want to come out of this this series with both the personal accomplishment of competing it, completing it, and hopefully, you know, doing something impressive that I'm proud of and also, you know, coming out of it and being able to see the impact that I could have on, you know, others that I know who, you know, jo- joined me on the journey for for the the 8 months of the series that was going on and you know might might join the series in the future. You know, that would be that would be really cool. You've mentioned impacting other people twice. So, you know, what is it about what you're doing do you think inspires other people or as you said impacts them? I've spent a lot of time with high school NICA teams, so that's the high school mountain bike leagues, and that's where I started cycling my senior year. And you know what really struck me from the beginning was how valuable it is when people give you their time. Money is one thing, you know, product is another thing. You know, the, that's that's great, but something that has the most impact is when people give up their time because that's really the most valuable thing and that stuck with me early on and that's what I try to do now I want to give you know my time to you know these these 15 year olds who are on bikes or you know whatever they're doing in their life I know the impact it can have on you know someone's future whether they stay in biking or not and that's something I want to to really spread um, awareness for, because I think people don't realize how impactful that that can really be. And so that's what I try to do. You know, I, I really do try to spend my time with others in, in ways that it's worthwhile for more than just myself. Talk more about what you're doing with the high school students. I've been involved with, you know, the high school leagues in my area. So El Cerrito High School is the main one. That's where I, that's where I rode. I've done a little bit with some Berkeley high school riders, a little bit with some Albany high school riders. And it, it does depend on (laughs) my work schedule and, you know, if I'm in the area, but I'll go out on rides with a team for training rides as a coach, you know, I'll take groups out and we'll go do a workout for their practice. Um, I'll also go out with a couple riders, you know, on the weekend or after school and we'll just talk or practice something that they, they want to practice. I've gone to some practice races with kids. So, you know, we'll go to a local cross country race and, you know, they'll they'll do the race. We'll talk about how it went, you know, kind of get them ready for their own league races. I also um, have been super lucky to help out with some like girls recruiting. So we do little little programming things like, you know, decorating helmets um, or hanging out in a backyard and just chatting. And that's been really cool to to try to grow the presence of girls in the sport because that's always been an issue in cycling and, you know, starting it from the very kind of entry into the sport in high school is where I hope to see a lot of the changes happening. So I, I try to do what I can there to to increase the numbers. Why are the numbers so low? I I think there's a lot of a lot of possible reasons, and I don't think anyone has the perfect answer. Um, I think one reason is that you know cycling is historically a very male-dominated sport, 
So you have that barrier already. I think there's also the barrier of getting girls into athletics. It can be daunting to try to convince, you know, a girl to join a sport that is male dominated, that is competitive, that can be, you know, painful or hard. Um, They're not always sure that they want to do that um, themselves. And I think those are two of the main reasons um, is, you know, making it something that is accepted that, yeah, like, you know, you belong here as a girl in this in this sport. And right now, it doesn't always seem that way. It's so interesting, though, because cycling actually has a really long history with women, you know, women finding freedom on bikes. I mean, maybe not necessarily racing, but certainly taking part in riding. Yeah, yeah. There there have been women. (laughs) There have been women in history, believe it or not, even though no one talks (laughs) about them. Um, Crazy how that works, right? Right. Um, (laughs) So, yes, it's frustrating because there is a history of women in cycling, but no one knows about it. You know, no one talks about it. Well, some people talk about it and people don't know what they're talking about, (laughs) as we can tell. And and it's so much about just changing that perspective that, you know, this is not a crazy idea that women belong in cycling. It's happened for for a long time and it's going to happen in the future. And it's just not in people's awareness right now. And just trying to change that, you know, every day is is something I hope I hope to do. And I think there is progress, but, you know, it's, it's just super hard when people don't just don't think that, right? They don't think that cycling is for them because they're a woman. Do you see a difference in mountain biking versus uh, road riding or mountain biking and gravel riding and cyclocross maybe versus road riding? Um, I do see differences. My experience with mountain biking is, you know, domestic at kind of the high school and then like pro level domestically. And my road experience is pretty much local right now. It's not it's not super high level. I do see a lot more presence of youth in mountain biking, both girls and boys, especially girls. I I see hardly any youth girls in in road racing in my area. I think that's possibly due to, you know, the Nike leagues. Um, Nike has really brought mountain biking into a sport that middle and high school kids can do and it's you know normal for them to do um and road racing does seem more elitist it does seem more out there more dangerous it's harder to just get into recreationally for youth specifically so i do see mountain biking making strides to kind of increase participation among girls and boys in in the US and I think road is is struggling to do the same that that mountain biking is doing. You talked a little bit about girls you know not thinking maybe that they could do an activity or do sports or something. Did I mishear you? Um I kind of covered that. So I think that there's this kind of expectation that you know, for girls that, you know, you don't have to be competitive. Like, it's all right to be, you know, kind of passive with things that, you know, failure is not good. Like, you know, don't don't push yourself to something you might not be able to do. Mm. 
I think there's that pressure of perfection and not necessarily perfection of, you know, you have to be perfect in everything you do, but perfection as like, you know, don't do something that you don't know you can complete, right? So getting into a competitive sport, something like mountain biking, you know, failure is <laughs> is going to happen. You know, it it's it's reality in that sport. And to be successful, you know, even just once, you know, it takes a lot of struggling. It takes pushing yourself physically and mentally. And I think that many girls don't realize that it's okay to do that. You know, that it's okay to really push yourself out of a comfort zone and everything that comes with that, right? Like, you know, can you be confident and demanding and take up space and be loud and, you know, be aggressive? Um, All of these things that I think our society subconsciously or even consciously tells young girls that they shouldn't do is what many of them need to be successful both in life and cycling you need all those qualities to deal with the the challenges that you'll face in all kinds of disciplines of of biking and you know all of this (laughs) all of this is a challenge right all of this is is tough to to talk about and teach and kind of wrap wrap your head around and I still struggle to kind of figure out you know how I want to to talk about this and approach it Um, I don't think there's a perfect answer there but I do think that when you look at most girls and most boys you see that you know the boys are more willing to to try things that they're probably not gonna to complete the first time or they're more willing to demand something that they think they they should have and girls are more likely to stand off to the side and just be happy with kind of the scraps or be happy with you know something uh, achieving something that they knew they could do in the first place and I think that's kind of a failure on society's part not to you know allow for girls to push themselves in ways that they should be allowed to do. You made me think that, you know, like success in sports and in other areas, too, is is not necessarily about winning all the time. Yeah, definitely not. I mean, of course, winning is maybe the most the most obvious success metric. Right. But I think success is so much more than that. It's, again, hard to recognize and talk about, I think. But, you know, success can be so personal you know it's did you as a person do something you know to your best ability at the moment like did you overcome something that you weren't able to do in the past how did you improve the experience of of those around you all of this is our types of success and you know in order to win races oftentimes all of that is part of it but you know there can be people who win races who are terrible people to hang out with or, you know, don't improve the lives of others, you know, who who might not, you know, treat their body well. You know, all of those things um, are different measures of success. And I think that, you know, stressing that success can look different for different people is also important to increase girls' participation because when you focus 
only on the result you often neglect the mental side of things or the progression side of things right like if you're going to be in a sport for 20 years like you're not going to be number one for 20 years right so how else can you make that successful and worthwhile for you because i do want cycling to be a lifetime you know whether it's lifetime hobby or lifetime you know <laughs> serious hobby for for everyone you know you have to find ways to to keep challenging yourself and seeing success in ways that other people might not might not understand well even when you're racing or you know you're in that racing mode you're not racing every day you're training every day probably yeah so you yeah. know you have to define success you know on a daily basis as well yeah yeah this is making me think about something that I read on your website where you said that you were not good at mountain biking skills. And this is something I think about a lot is like how people get better at something that they're not good at. And like, why the hell do we stick with this stuff that we're not good at? You know, from the outside, it probably looks crazy. And, you know, this goes into what you're talking about with girls feeling like they have to be good right at, you know, right when they start, which is, of course, not the reality of things. Yeah, I was terrible at mountain biking <laughs> and I am still not spectacular at it. And I love that. I love that. <laughs> Honestly, I oh man. I don't know why I was so stubborn about it, but like I was just god awful at mountain biking. Like I could go uphills fine. I could not go downhills to save my life. And it was more of just like me getting really determined that like I could do this, right? It was like, I know I can do this. I'm going to do this at some point, right? And like it took years really until I was, I would say, adequate <laughs> at mountain biking and a lot of practice and a lot of frustration and a lot of working with a coach. And I think people like really want to like see me now and be like, oh, like you're so good at everything. And all I see are things I need to improve on, right? Like, I'm like, oh, man, like, I don't know what you're seeing right now, but I see an endless list of things I need to practice and, you know, improve myself. And, you know, there's just that that little bit of, like, annoying, like, frustration with yourself and, like, desire to prove that you can do something, I think, is what what really drove me to pick up mountain biking at relatively like late age to some of these high school kids. I was 18 and had zero experience mountain biking and, and stick with it. Um, and even now, you know, I still get frustrated with, with certain things I feel like I should be able to do, but you know, it's, it's just showing up every day and, you know, kind of thinking to yourself, okay, this is a, a decade long process, maybe multiple decades, um, a lifetime <laughs> right? yeah, process of getting sure. good at mountain biking and you know being okay with that and just going out every day to to get better and and find success right like success can be for some people like going over a curb and that's totally fine i have been there right like i remember figuring out how to you know get my front wheel over an obstacle and it was mind-blowing and it was the biggest biggest success of probably like the month for me and some people would have looked at that and been like what the hell like that is nothing, you know, but like for me, it was huge, right? So there are different levels of success and different things that drive people to to find that success. And 
it's all about encouraging that right and like stop discouraging people from doing things that are challenging or hard because you know it it is it is worthwhile you mentioned starting late what was the draw like i mean it sounds like you signed up for mountain biking in your high school and you never turned back <laughs> yeah i had done competitive soccer for for most of my life but i had seen a couple of my teammates tear their acls like on the field in front of me and i realized you know what like i don't want to do this in college um i don't want to destroy my acls at age 18 maybe i should do something else and i just happened to know one person on the mountain bike team and i said hey like can i join and that was that was it like there was really no reason besides i need a new sport to do <laughs> and that got me into it and you know because i am stupidly competitive and really stubborn and annoying i i stuck with it even though it was frustrating and that's how it started cool we talked a little bit about that there aren't as many girls in cycling what do we do about that and you know on the podcast i often talk about the tangled web of how you know fixing one thing seems like the perfect answer but then it has all these cascading effects and i expect that your answer is going to be like that <laughs> yes there are so many oh man i wish i had like a one sentence answer for you here but but i do not there are there are levels of it right i think that a lot of it is making it acceptable like just normal right like make cycling a normal activity that women can do girls and women can do that's kind of the first step but of course it's so much deeper than that right so we know right that women are very active in trying to get more women into sports you know just let's say specific to cycling most of the women i know in the sport are advocates and are very active and you know are willing to to put in effort and i do believe that you know women have a huge role in you know increasing accessibility and numbers of other women but i think we're at the point now where it's on the men to step in i think that men do not realize or do not care about how much of an impact they can have on cycling for women it's it's so frequently kind of shrugged off as oh like you know women can increase women because like women can talk to women or you know all of that but i wish i had the power that you know a man did when they say something you know if i say one thing and a man says the exact same thing what that man says will often go so much further than what i say and that's a huge power right there that men don't realize they can have to, you know, increase accessibility and, you know, kind of the, the atmosphere that cycling has for women. And then, you know, the other aspect is because cycling is male dominated right now, um, let's say in the US, all of those men have this amazing opportunity to open the door and give space to women. It is so easy for, you know, men to go up to women at races and just say, hey, like, what's your name? You know, like, how is your race? You know, talk to them about their racing, talk to them about what they want to do or whatever it is, right? Like, make women feel seen, make them feel like they have a space. 
it does not have to be, you know, huge time commitments. Although if you want to like feel free, that's totally acceptable. You know, all of these little things that men can do to have huge impacts. You know, I think that, you know, if you had 10 men talk to 10 women and ask them to come to a race, you know, that would, that would be huge. You know, I think that if a woman felt like she had support and mentorship from just a friend, you know, in cycling who happens to be a guy who could, you know, walk her through a race and like, you know, support her at the end and kind of talk through how to be successful and whatever it was that can do so much for the sport. It can do so much for the visibility of women and the kind of acceptance that women are a part of this. They deserve to be seen. They deserve to be here. Um, and they deserve to have, you know, everything that, that men have in the sport. Everything that you've mentioned so far is pretty grassroots. What do you think about sort of the structural system? Is it supportive? I mean, we could talk about a lot of different structures like you know, UCI, USA Cycling, but yeah. any other like clubs and whatnot. I have not had great experience with USA Cycling. I think that the organization means well. You know, I do think that they want to improve cycling. But I think that they're going about it the wrong ways or not they're not aware of, you know, how to get women into the sport. You know, I I had an issue with an official at a national championship a couple years ago where he straight up said that the men's races were the main event of the national championship, you know, in front of professional female cyclists. And I was shocked, right? I was like, if this is the belief that you know, the top officials of USA Cycling have, that's a problem. You know, they're also, as most people in road racing know, the upgrade requirements for road racing are very, very difficult for women because they rely on field sizes. And many field sizes for women are super small. And if you don't even have five starters, points don't even count, right? And so many times at local races there will not be five women in a field so you know there's no way for women to move up categories the way the current system is set up so usa cycling is really driving women away from road racing you know into gravel into mountain biking um because of how bureaucratic their their system is you know they they don't allow for people who come from you know, gravel racing or mountain biking to to upgrade road categories based on recommendations or other events, which I think is a huge oversight and they're losing out a lot of participation due to that. And, you know, so far they have not really been receptive to to changing that. And I think it's unfortunate. We do know that most of their their membership base are older men. But if they want to change that, you know, they have to you know, address the problems that are facing their other groups. So, yeah, I would say that most of my my belief in change comes from, you know, grassroots and smaller organizations like NICA because I don't see USA Cycling or the UCI making changes at the bigger level. Even though they have the power to do so, I don't think that they are in the spot to make those changes. So I think it's on other people to do it for them. In your experience with the high school kids, 
you know, what are their goals for cycling? Do they want to continue racing once they go to college? Like, how is sport, how are bikes fitting into their life? It depends on the kid. Um, A lot of them come into the sport not thinking they want to race, you know, forever because it's just a high school sport they're going to do. Um, And you'll see some completely change over the years, right, across the four years in high school to be super competitive, to want to do it, you know, professionally later on. Whether they have a job or not, they still want to compete at the pro level. Others, you know, just want to do it recreationally for the rest of their lives, and that's totally fine. I do think that most of them aren't necessarily interested in racing professionally later on. And and that's part of the reason why I think there are so many lessons that cycling can give to to youth that is beyond just, you know, winning a race that I kind of <laughs> that I want to drill into them um, be, <laughs> before they graduate high school. Because I, I think that there are, there are lessons to, to learn and take away from that will, you know, positively impact the rest of their lives, whether it's on a bike or not. In some ways, what we're talking about makes me a little sad just because, you know, it seems like these are some of the issues that women, girls faced when I was young or even, you know, earlier than that. Like, why aren't we getting rid of these issues? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. None of this is new. And I I know so many older women who, you know, are in the, the road racing with me who, you know, are 40 or 50 and have faced the same problems their whole lives. And I think looking at it as, you know, this is probably going to be something that's talked about well after, you know, I'm dead. Like this is going to go on for years, right? Don't um, make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, there are changes that can be made. You know, we, we see it. You know, we see more women getting into the sport. We see women who are willing to say, hey, that's not right. You know, we're seeing men say that, hey, that's not right. You know, women deserve this. So I do see a lot more willingness to talk about these situations. I see a lot more willingness to, you know, put a foot down and say, hey, like, that's sexist, like that needs to stop or this needs to change. Like I'm not willing to settle for something that is still degrading me. And I think that has improved, you know, from before I was born until now. I just think that, you know, as more women get into the sport, you know, more issues come to the surface that, you know, are so systemic and, you know, need to be addressed. And it's just going to be a process, you know, and being willing to, you know, figure out what what you want to focus on and, you know, try to find support and, you know, just keep talking about it and just keep bringing it to light. Um, and, you know, don't let don't let people convince you that you're not worth it. Well, I want to talk about your job because you work at Specialized. So what exactly do you do there? I work specific to the USA, so I'm not a, a global employee. And I do a lot of work on our bike and equipment product. So I kind of help look at, you know, all of our prices and margins for the year and figure out how to how to sell our product and kind of the landscape of, of the US and, you know, how we can, you know, increase sales and, you know, support the riders that, that we service. So that is a very broad answer and does not really answer anything, I don't think. <laughs> but whatever whatever pops up on the day 
that someone needs help with, I'm there to to support them. <laughs> right. Well, I can ask you, do you think about gender in that role? I mean, you talked about, you know, thinking about your customer and selling to your customer. I mean, how do you deal with, with cycling for genders? That's an interesting question. You know, our product teams have realized that, you know, say a male and female body are more similar than one might think. And it's more, you know, people's shape that changes. So, you know, we have different types of saddles that, you know, will fit both men and women, but, you know, are wider or narrower or whatever it may be. Same with bikes, you know, same with suspension. But I do think that thinking about who are you trying to sell to and like, what do they want out of a product or what are they looking for in a piece of equipment? Because I think there, there has historically been a focus on, okay, like the cyclist is a 30 year old man. And, you know, now we know that's not the case. Our customers are, you know, five years old, 95 years old, all genders, you know, across the US, all kinds of disciplines. And I think it's a lot harder to, to internalize that than to just say it, right? Like, I think that, you know, it's still super easy to list off, you know, five professional cyclists and just have them all be men at the company you know but thinking oh like you know sd works is like the top if not one of the top road teams in europe you know they're all women you know how can we design our product to help them be successful um and you know of course at the amateur level too in the u.s you know how can we design you know bikes that will help a woman feel more comfortable on you know rough gravel roads you know, she might need different suspension than a man because she weighs less. You know, things like that, I think, are definitely recognized by our product teams and are being talked about and thought through. And I think it's, it you know, it can just be a challenge to realize how many different types of riders we have and how best to to service all of them and make all of them feel valued and, you know, feel like, yeah, like you are a cyclist, like whether you ride once a year or six days a week, you are a cyclist and you have a spot. Um, and that's really what we're trying to do right now to, to make everyone feel welcome. You must be unusual at Specialized being, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of imagining you being one of the few women there. Is that true? There are more women at Specialized than there have been. I still think like the company splits maybe like 70-30. So it's, it is not equal. However, it, it is improving. Um, I would say that I'm probably one of the loudest and most annoying about <laughs> these topics there. So <laughs> there's that. But I've been there. I've been there for over two years now. So, you know, I've kind of seen seen the company and kind of what we do. And I'm still around. So that's that's good. There's, and, yeah, there's that. <laughs> How did you know you wanted to get into the cycling industry? I mean, speaking of role models, there probably, as I said, there probably weren't a ton of them. Yeah. So I knew that, you know, I never wanted to just be a professional athlete. Not that I could have anyway, but, <laughs> you know, I always wanted to, you know, have a, a job, something in, in probably like finance and data, because that's what I really enjoyed doing. And, you know, I had an opportunity to, to go work for Specialized as a full-time intern and, you know, I thought to myself, hey, like this is, you know, a company that aligns with what I'm interested in athletically right now. 
and gives me an opportunity to work in a job that's, you know, challenging mentally, right? Like it's, you know, data driven. Um, I'm working out problems. So it, it really did seem perfect having support on the bike side and having support on the, the job side. It was just kind of a perfect match and I'm still there obviously. So it, it has worked out so far and I do still feel that way. You know, it's, it's great to be able to combine kind of my passions outside of work with my work. And it also is nice because it does not feel like bikes 24 seven, right? Because I'm not working on product. So, you know, I can kind of, you know, get into my, my worksheets and my, my databases and forget that it's about bikes. So I can kind of, you know, escape from bikes a little bit if I need to and still enjoy the whole industry experience. In the YouTube video that you're on, it was a get kids on bikes benefit. And you say that you had, you made sort of this reference of pages of stories of sexism. Was that at work? Was that in your coaching? What are you talking about? Yeah. So over, when was this? I think I had just graduated high school. I was, I was in college at this point and I was frustrated because people that I talked to didn't realize how widespread, you know, the experiences that women have are, right? They was like, oh, like sexism is old, right? Like we're in 2020, like sexism doesn't exist anymore. Like, come on. And it was frustrating to me because there's so many levels of sexism and it's everywhere, right? Like if you're, if you're not seeing sexism, you're just not aware of it like it's it's there like your eyes just aren't used to to seeing it you know you're, you're so used to it and so what I did was I went and just reached out to dozens of cyclists I knew you know at that point they were all about my age so maybe 18 or so 18 years old and I said hey like what's your experience as a cyclist like do you have experiences negative or positive you know, related to your gender, whatever it was. And I got so many responses from all kinds of people, you know, different ages, different experiences. And some of them were shocking, right? Like, you don't want to hear a 16 year old, like just list off these experiences of, you know, being made to feel like she shouldn't ride a bike because she's female. And I think people like to have this nice little bubble right that like oh yeah like you know that doesn't happen here right but it does you know it happens here it happens everywhere I think that most women have these experiences I think it would be harder to find a woman who doesn't than a woman who does and I just collected them you know I didn't really do anything with them like I didn't want to like publish them but I just wanted to have them to learn from myself and also, you know, just know that, yes, like, you know, you're not alone. Like there are other people who've experienced this and there are people who want to change it. And that was a big moment for me too. But I was like, you know what, like I'm stubborn enough and like I'm willing to to say things that other people might be too shy to say or, you know, stand up for for people who don't feel comfortable doing that and that was probably one of the catalysts that really got me into to all of this you know advocacy and talking about everything because you know it's it's everywhere like 
There are so many people who experience all kinds of things that just need, you know, acknowledgement and need people to, to be willing to make changes for them. You mentioned earlier about having men be more advocates for women. And that was one of my big revelations during the Me Too movement, because I can't remember why it came up, but I we discovered that my husband had had no understanding that basically every time I went out on a bike ride, I would get catcalled or harassed or this or that. And it was just like this thing that happened every day. And he had never realized it was that bad. And part of me was like, oh my gosh, how could you have not realized that? But the other part of me was like, how could I not have told him that before now? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is such an, ex yeah, that is such a common experience that I've heard about. And I think a lot of it is, you know, I don't go around telling my male friends the experiences that I've had. Right. <laughs> it's like, that's kind of a weird conversation starter, to be fair. You right. know, it's like, oh, hey, like, <laughs> do you want to hear about what happened to me this weekend? Um, no, it's kind of weird. But then I'm also like, hey, you know what? I should tell you what happened to me this weekend, right? Like, you should absolutely hear about this. So <laughs> maybe that will be my conversation starter now. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it's like, okay, guys, like, men, why don't you talk to your female friends and ask them about this, right? Because, like, I think that women would be super happy to express kind of their thoughts and their experiences which are so unique to themselves right like the experiences I have will not be the same that someone else has even if they're similar everyone kind of has their own reactions to things and I think it's just hard to first tell women that it's okay to tell men about these things and then men that it's okay to ask women about these things if you're well-meaning about it and I think that, you know, the Me Too movement shocked so many men that they're like, oh, my God, like this happens. And for all the women, it was like, yeah, like this is like old news. Like, where were you the past 50 years? This is not shocking to any of us. Um, so there's this huge disconnect between genders about daily life, really. And kind of overcoming that that divide is super hard and it can be super uncomfortable for everyone right so that's why people avoid it but i think that trying to find that you know discomfort and accept it and try to you know figure out how it can be approached and you know how how both sides both men and women can can you know use their experiences and their different types of you know power dynamics to to make everyone everyone's lives better and that's super challenging right no one wants to talk about these things because they are super uncomfortable and super not fun and not a fun conversation topic but it's so important to talk about them it's also sort of like taking the red pill blue pill thing you know like once you see it then oh my goodness it's everywhere yeah that's part of it too like once you are aware of it you can't ignore it anymore right like you suddenly have this obligation to say something or do something and i think that's daunting also i know i, I had a former manager who i love so dearly and you know he we, we would talk about these things and 
you know, he started to to realize them, you know, at work or in daily life. And he came up to me and was like, hey, like, I see these things now. I have to say something. <laughs> I was like, yes, you do. <laughs> you can't just be a bystander now. And I think that it was super daunting for him, but also he leaned into it and he was like, you know what? I can. I'm, you know, older. Like, I can totally say something now. And it was it was very encouraging to see that because I think that you do feel like you have power when you recognize sexism or whatever, you know, it is in the world. You recognize it and then are able to, you know, at least challenge it or say something about it. And so I think that people should should strive to to be that way instead of just pretending it doesn't exist or refusing to see it. Right. What's it like in the cycling industry? I mean, I don't want to call out specialized, but, you know, at specialized or in the industry as a whole. Um, I think that at specialized and in the industry, most people are very well-meaning. You know, they they want to make a difference. They they've heard about the challenges that women face and they want to improve that. But again, it's very hard to to recognize the challenges that some people face when you are not those people, like when you don't have that shared experience or you don't have many women to talk to. So I think that, you know, a lot of the men in the industry are in their bubbles of their realities and their realities are not my reality but they can't see my reality because their experiences are different you know they don't face the same microaggressions that I do they don't see them you know they just don't pick up on them at all and that's something that you know I would pick up on so you know yes they might think oh like my culture and my team is super inviting to women you know whatever it is but they're not realizing the microaggressions that they do or they're not realizing the doors that they shut or they're not realizing the space that they're not inviting you know women to come into and I'll, I this is tough because this kind of goes back to telling men that they need to talk to women and specifically talk about these things you know you have to talk to women to hear about their experiences and learn about their experiences so you can see them yourself because you know men aren't going to face the gender microaggressions that women do men probably will not notice the board presentation that has you know pictures of only professional men's teams but women might and these are all things that of course can change right like you're not going to have the same perspective your entire life and i think that once people realize you know, the situation or are taught to pick up on on certain cues, they'll notice them. So this isn't written in stone. But I think that just saying, oh, yes, like I care about, you know, making cycling inclusive for women isn't that's nothing like I don't care what you say. It's a lot about what you do. And that can be frustrating because, you know, I do try to push a lot of the men that I know to get involved and to reach out to me or reach out to anyone, you know, and, and try to make a difference. But that takes effort, right? That, that takes commitment. That takes a level of wanting to make a difference for something that does not affect their lives specifically. And 
you know, I don't see a lot of, a lot of men taking me up on those offers, you know, like they're like, yeah, like I totally want to improve your experience or improve the experience of women in my community. And then I'm like, cool, why don't you talk to me about our experiences? And then they don't want to reach out, you know, or they, they just kind of go silent. And I think I've learned to just, you know, not accept it, but just know that it's going to be a process of me constantly bringing it up and talking to all the people I know about it until you know, they, they start to internalize it. Are you hopeful? What keeps you going? I am hopeful. I think what keeps me going is that I see the changes affecting women around me in positive ways, both from what I can do and what other people can do. So, you know, even if the change is so small, you know, even if it's just, you know, getting women to have the same prize pants that men do, you know, that impacts a lot of the girls that I race with or, you know, help coach who see that and like they see that, hey, like I'm equal, you know, I'm worth it. So it's, it's small, right? Like there's so many small victories that, that you can see and you can pick up on. And that, that keeps me going because I think that even if it's just one person who you improve their, their life in cycling, that's enough, right? Hopefully it's, hopefully it's more than one person. But, you know, that, that's where you start and you just have to keep, keep going each day and being willing to, to stand up and be annoying and take up space and <laughs> frustrate some people and, and see what you can get done. What are your aspirations in the industry? Um, I think that my aspirations in the industry are, you know, beyond just like racing success or, you know, job success and are definitely more of, I want to make cycling something that girls and women see themselves doing or have the space to take part in and don't face the same hurdles or challenges that I face, or at least, you know, we can decrease those hurdles. You know, I think there are a lot of glass ceilings in cycling, um, both in industry and in the sport. I do want to make a difference there and like, you know, be able to, you know, let's say when I retire from, from all of this, you know, being loud and annoying and, you know, racing bikes, you know, I can look back and say, hey, like I did that, you know, I improved this person's life, you know, I changed this, you know, this rule to allow more women to get into things and hopefully encourage more women to continue on the the torch of <laughs> taking up space and challenging what they see as not being fair or not being inclusive. Have you had smooth sailing in terms of, I mean, what, what barriers have you seen for yourself? Um... I think I've faced barriers of kind of access. It can be very hard to to race at a high level when you don't have sponsors, or you don't have certain connections that other people do. In road racing, you know, I've faced barriers where, you know, the, the pro races didn't race for the same time period as the men's that you know we got cut short on time we didn't have the same payout and prizes some of those things I was you know I've I've worked to change and some of those things you know I see as a such a kind of 
endemic problem that, you know, I see that the impact I can have is, you know, helping people climb over those hurdles, right? Like if you, if you can't knock the hurdle down, make it easier for other people to get over it, you know? So if I can help someone figure out how to get to a race or how to get a license, you know, like that took me forever to figure out, you know, I'll pass that information on. I've faced, you know, issues of sexism and discrimination, but I see that more of a common problem. Like that's what everyone faces. So I think most women have to have no choice but to overcome that themselves. I really just want to help other people not get um, knocked off course by by what, what comes their way. That's a great phrase, knocked off course, because that's what it feels like sometimes. Yeah, you know, sometimes it just feels like, you know, everyone's against you and like there's no, there's, there's no hope. And you're like, why am I doing this? I hate it. Everyone else hates me. Like, <laughs> what's the point? And then, you know, you get a text from someone who's like, hey, like, I super appreciate, you know, X, Y, Z that you did for me. And you're like, ah, it's worth it. <laughs> you know, it can, it can be so lonely to be a woman in cycling. And I think recognizing that and then doing what you can to help other people not feel that same loneliness, keep them in the sport, keep them making changes, keep them making a difference is super powerful. I wonder about sponsorship of athletes. And you you sort of mentioned that, or you, you said something that made me think that maybe it was harder for women to get sponsorship. What's your impression of that? Yeah. I think that's tough. I don't have much experience with sponsorship myself. In some ways, I see that nowadays, you know, unless you're, you know, a pro level cyclist, you know, racing world tour, a lot of sponsorships are driven by social media, Mm. which is fine. But what I do see, and I have done like some little projects on, is that men who have sponsorships through social media often sell their bikes or like they're racing or you know they they can just rely on their videos or their experience to to get views and women are often turned into objects so you see a lot more you know selfies or you know heavy makeup shots or swimsuit photos and this one's tough for me because absolutely women should do what they need to do to have success. They should feel perfectly willing to, you know, post those photos on Instagram. But I think that it's, you know, can be misleading for for young girls and boys to see that men can get sponsorship success by racing well and by posting cool bike videos and women can get sponsorship success by looking pretty and showing off their their colorful nails and I wish the two weren't mutually exclusive you know I wish that you know we had more instances of women influencers let's say in cycling who weren't just a pretty face you know that that were able to show off their their videos or their skills more than most of them do but again this is this is a super tough balance because you know i think that women should be able to feel 
pretty and they should be able to post whatever they want to post without being objectified. But it's such a tough balance. And I don't know the answer here, but, you know, I, I really would struggle to tell a teenage girl what they would have to do to get so many followers on social media and, you know, get sponsorships that way. Because I think that many of the people we do see are selling themselves as an object more than they are selling their skills and their their brain and their intellect and their discipline and, you know, everything else that makes someone successful. I've been thinking a lot about this and I'm wondering like who the who the followers are. I mean, are they in fact women? And the reason I wonder about that is because the athlete that you're talking about is not an athlete that I would particularly follow. And so I'm just wondering if, yeah, I'm just wondering who their followers are. And are we just making it so that Instagram followers of male athletes are male and Instagram followers of female influencer model kind of athletes are also male? Yeah, that's interesting, which I've thought about, you know, kind of in the back of my head. I have a hunch. (laughs) I have a hunch. I think you have a hunch, too, that we are making it so that men are following the top men and the top women. And, you know, we're expecting women to look pretty for that. And I'm not sure how to how to change that. Right. Because like if if the world of cycling, let's say, is 70 percent guys, you know, and 30 percent women, you know, you have like if you want to appeal to the largest fan base, you know, you want to get those followers. So if men men are more receptive, I feel such a terrible person saying this. (laughs) If like, you know, men in general might be more receptive to, you know, a woman who looks super pretty for a photo versus a woman who is just showing off, you know, a bike photo. Who am I to judge that woman for doing that to like getting those sponsorships? But then I see the young girls that I know who are trying to find something to look up to and are seeing that, you know, and it's it's so frustrating for me because it's so much more than what you look like. You know, it's so much more than how you talk. It's so much more than sponsorships. You know, it's it's everything else that we spent the last hour talking about to to find success. And I I just don't know. It's it's so complicated now. And it's such a dynamic landscape. I do wonder, though, if, you know, those athletes, I mean, now it's hypothetical. I'm not thinking about anybody in particular. But, you know, that hypothetical influencer female athlete, I mean, since I'm not going to follow her, I'm sure that other, you know, people who are interested in following female athletes are also not following her. So, yes, more power to, to her to find followers, but at the same time, you know, maybe people like me are missing out. Yeah. Yeah. And people like your high school students are missing out. Yeah. We should make all of us the majority. And right. then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what I'm working on. I'm working on it. Yep. I'm working yep. on it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's super tough. Well, you make me want to start sort of spreading the word about female athletes who do a good job on social media. 
Oh, good. Good. Yes. We should do that. <laughs> I mean, there, there are so many, right? Like, there's a lot of really awesome oh, yeah. women who might not be, like, have the highest followers, but are making such a difference in their communities at the grassroots level or are just super cool people, right? You know, might be a rocket scientist, like, for their job and also race bikes. I want all the kids I work with to, to see that, you know, it's like you can do so many things in your life. Like it's not about how you look. It's about everything else that you are. Well, all right. We have talked for way longer than I expected <laughs> and it has been absolutely fantastic. So thank you. Of course. It's been, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. And that is a wrap for this week's show. Thank you to Noel for connecting me to Helena and recognizing that she and I would have a lot of stuff to talk about. It's always fun to have such terrific women on the show and to offer you an opportunity to learn from them and take those things into your own training and lives. There are other ways to keep the conversation going. Hear Her Sports is on social with the handle Hear Her Sports. You can send me an email to elizabeth at hearhersports.com. I always love hearing from you and do reply. And if you aren't a newsletter subscriber, check it out. Between episodes, I write a few words about issues in sports, the podcast, and how to watch women's sports, or follow along in other ways. Sign up at hearhersports.com. And until next time, bye-bye. That was sweet. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts.